you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis again in chapter 6. We're going to look at parts of chapter 6 through chapter 9 in the narrative of the flood. And I want us to think today about corruption, judgment, and deliverance. Now, if you've been with us these past few weeks, I've been focusing on a series of messages on great stories from God's Word. And this is another one of those. And as I preach this message this morning, I want to bring it back full circle uh, toward the conclusion as well and think about how this ties in with the global mission that God has given us as his people. So in effect today we are going back thousands of years to an age that was marked by turmoil and confusion. Creation had begun in beauty and peace. Man had everything that he could need in the presence of God communing with God, walking with God, knowing the love and the grace of God in all things. But that beauty and peace began to disappear when sin came onto the scene, when things became chaotic and the skies were darkened and the ground was ravaged and violence and cruelty began to rule the day. The seeds of all of that are found in the first five chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis. As we think about this in a more global perspective and how sin impacted the world, we recognize that no house built on a shaky foundation can stand. In fact, the record of history is the collapse of one successive civilization after another. Depending on what historian you read, they'll give you different numbers, but I've read that there have been somewhere around 21 major civilizations that have existed throughout the history of man. Each one of those has collapsed and another one has taken its place. So we should not be surprised to find in Scripture as a result of sin, as a result of the fall of man, the signs that are accompanying and preceding the collapse of a civilization even in our own day. There is a profound contemporary application here. And one of the reasons that we know there is a profound contemporary application here is because Jesus himself drew the parallel from the days of Noah to the days that precede the coming of the Son of Man. It was Jesus who told us that we should anticipate similar things prior to his return that were taking place in the days of Noah. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 24 and verse 37 and following, Jesus said, As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. So while we're going back thousands of years in history this morning, we're really overlaying this as a template for our day, and we're looking forward to what we should anticipate until Jesus returns, and also how we should live on mission for God, how we can be similar to who and what Noah was as a voice of righteousness in the world. Many people in the world don't know a lot about the Bible, But there are a lot of people who are familiar with the story of Noah's Ark. Even in our culture that is becoming more and more biblically illiterate, there are many people who know about this great story. There are paintings about it everywhere. There have been 
a multitude of children's books that have been written about Noah and the ark. Uh, There have been stories told about it. There are a lot of people who are familiar with it. But I would go a step further than that and say that the knowledge of such a thing as a worldwide flood is universal even beyond the book of Genesis. Some have tried to take some of the narratives of history that have told of some type of cataclysmic flood and say, well, then that's not really something that happened in the way that the Bible said that it happened because there are other cultures in other times who have also said that there was a flood. What I would argue is that the flood that actually took place that is recorded and told to us in the Bible is the narrative that has driven all of the other narratives. That it's what actually happened in the world that has caused other people to maybe tell their own version of the story, however accurate or inaccurate it might be. We also see in the Bible that there are many people in the Scripture and important figures who took Noah very seriously. Isaiah the prophet would be an example. Um, Ezekiel the prophet took Noah seriously, mentioning him twice as one of the three most righteous men in history. The writer of Chronicles, as well as Luke, includes Noah. And Peter mentioned Noah two times, not even to mention what I was just referencing from the Lord Jesus Christ talking about him as well. There are a couple things that are important for us to approach this passage with. When we approach a passage of Scripture like this, we might be tempted to think that it's only about judgment. It's just about the judgment of God upon sin. It's the destruction that has come because of sin, and that's all there is to be found here. And in part, that would be true because judgment is a major theme. But even greater than the judgment that is found here is the saving grace of God. And I want you to see the saving grace of God that shines through so clearly in this as we make our way through this passage this morning. We might also be tempted to get bogged down in the events of the actual flood itself and get into the details of it and try to look at it from an apologetic standpoint and try to argue the realities of what could happen or was that something that could have truly happened in the world. And I'll make a couple of references to that as we go along, but that's certainly not our emphasis either. These things are important, but they're not primary. The message of who God is and what God does through people who trust him and what God's message of hope is to a world who needs him is really the focus of this passage that we're going to consider. So we're going to think about these principles that God has given us that I think he would have us understand and apply to our lives. I think it is essential and important for us to approach the account of Noah from a particular perspective. So I just want to lay this out on the table and tell you this is my premise. This is how I'm approaching it. The events of the flood happened just as the Bible records, historically and factually. And I believe that because it is God's word and God cannot lie, that they are absolutely true on all accounts. And I believe that this story, this narrative, is for our instruction, for our growth, for our understanding of who God is, who we are, the condition of the world, and what our message is that we're proclaiming about this God who has called us to himself. 
So we'll read this as a progression beginning in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to find one there in front of you in the seat and follow along with me as we move through this passage. The Word of God says, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Now verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. The first reality I want you to see in this passage is that corruption is rooted in sin. Corruption is rooted in sin. Now here was the situation. Wickedness ran rampant on the earth during those days to the point that it was unusually intense. It was completely widespread. Wickedness always rules the day when people are united in their opposition to God. And they were in this situation where God, in his love for humanity, had created man in his own image. He had created people to respond to his heart of love with a heart of love. And man's wickedness was so great on the earth that every scheme and thought in his heart and his mind was nothing but evil all the time. So we might say it this way. People were completely and thoroughly evil to the very core of their being. Wickedness grieves God. See, God is holy, and he is a God who does not look upon sin and rebellion favorably. And his heart was broken. And sometimes I think because we jettison sin or we minimize it or we try to cover it and think that somehow it's going to be okay or nobody will notice or God won't really care that we forget the motivation for us not desiring to sin is that it grieves the heart of the God who has given us physical life and who offers us spiritual life. And God was grieved. And he regretted, the scripture says, that he had made man on the earth, according to verse 6. Now admittedly, the language of regret and grief here makes it seem like creation was a colossal error on the part of God. But what we need to understand is that this is a powerful figure of speech which communicates to us 
vividly the anger of God and the sadness of God over sin and the broken heart of God in the way that people responded to him in disobedience and with disregard. According to verse 11 and 12, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was filled with wickedness. God saw this corruption that was on the earth, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. People were rotten to the core. We were at the point of history where people had no restraint. You think it's bad now. Oh, it's been much worse before. Because now we're existing under the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit and things are not nearly as bad as they could be, even as bad as they are. But then it was pervasive. The wickedness was deep in all of the earth. There was no restraint. And the primary element of our sin and their sin is a rebellious, independent spirit toward God. We are, by nature, having been created by God, dependent beings. We depend on God for physical life. I was not born on my own. It was the creative hand of God that gave me life and brought me into this world. I am dependent on God for every breath that I take through the day. I'm dependent on God for the health that I enjoy. And the fallen nature denies that we are dependent creatures. And the enemy, the serpent, convinces people that they can somehow be independent from God, that they can be self-sufficient from God, that they can have something on their own that God could not provide. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a quandary, trying to be self-sufficient. And you need to understand, things have not changed in that sense. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. So this corruption that God looked upon the earth and saw was at its root the depths of wickedness. It was driven by self-sufficiency and an independent, rebellious spirit toward God. And then we come to the second reality. While corruption is rooted in sin, judgment is rooted in righteousness. While corruption is rooted in sin, judgment is rooted in righteousness. Now, move here with me, Jamie, if you will. God's righteousness is the expression of his holiness. God is infinitely holy and is opposed to all sin. He acts according to his holy character. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 11 and verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. So God is the one who is omniscient. He knows all things. God is omnipresent. He is in every place. And God sees, he knows, he grieves what he sees. In Psalm 99 in verse 5 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool because holy is he. And none of us can be righteous on our own. It only comes as a gift from God. You remember the discussion in the book of Romans, speaking of Abraham, who was called to be the father of a great nation, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the Bible says that Abraham did what? He believed God, and it was accounted to him 
as righteousness. That was before the law. That was certainly outside of any capacity Abraham had on his own to perfectly obey God. But he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And I would say to you today that that is the same circumstance that Noah found himself in. The nice things and the incredibly holy things that we're going to read about Noah here in reference in just a moment are not from his own being. Remember, he had a fallen nature. He had entered life into this darkness of the world. The fall had already happened. All of the corruption and the chaos was already a reality. And here Noah steps forward into this world, and yet he's described as someone who believed God. So the righteousness that is accounted for and spoken of here about Noah is purely from God. And the scripture says specifically in verse 9 that Noah was a righteous man. Righteousness is God's holiness. And if we are declared righteous, then it means that we conform to God's standard because the gift of God's righteousness has been given to us. And God was pleased with this man because he took God at his word and he obeyed God's expectations. This is not just for a great saint in history past. This is not just for this epic, larger-than-life figure in the Word of God. This is for all of us who might believe. This is for all of us who would have the righteousness of God, that we would depend on God. And in an impure world, Noah was pure. In the midst of this thorough wickedness, Noah was righteous. And the Scripture says here that Noah was blameless among his contemporaries. In other words, he was complete with no essential quality missing. And I remind you, the temptations in that culture must have been overwhelming. If people were thoroughly and completely wicked in everything that they did, and yet here you have this man in the midst of all that, can you imagine the pressure that he must have felt to walk along the broad road? Even though he had committed to the narrow road, All of these people around him were mocking him and laughing at him and trying to draw him into their own sin. No doubt he was a target of the enemy, the serpent, the devil. And yet it says, Noah walked with God. So the righteousness was gifted to him by God. His strength of character was secured and strengthened by the fact that he was walking with God. This should tell us something that in the midst of a very evil society where there are many opportunities for us to do wrong, where there are many opportunities for us to be drawn along that broad way, and Jesus is calling us to walk the narrow way, that if we walk with God, that's the key to our spiritual power. And the moment that our enemy isolates us and he gets us off to the side and he convinces us to chase after one of those idols that is nothing but a deception and he draws us in and by our own evil desires we're drawn towards sin, it's in that moment that we have to remember that we have the righteousness of God and we're going to walk with God, then we can have the victory. And in a world that dismissed God, Noah walked with God. So you can never use an excuse. Well, these are difficult days that we live in. 
the temptations are great. I couldn't help myself. Surely God would understand, and you're thinking that you're going to presume upon the grace of God and take advantage of it. You can use none of that as an excuse. Because you can look back at this man from history who was gifted righteousness, who was in the midst of wickedness, and yet he made the decision to walk with God in the middle of all of it. And he was faithful. And the Bible says also that he was a preacher of righteousness in Second Peter. I'd remind you that nobody but his own family responded to his preaching of righteousness. And maybe God will call us or place us in circumstances where it seems like nobody's listening. The point is not whether people listen and respond to us. The point is, are we glorifying our great God with the message of hope? That's the point. And I think that's what Noah felt in his heart. He was so close to God that he wanted to honor God with his life. And he preached righteousness decade after decade, even though nobody was listening. And he was also a family man. He had these sons and then their wives and his own wife. How are people going to remember you when your life is over? What a message. What a character. What a testimony. This is how he is remembered eternally. This man named Noah, he was a faithful man. And for us to be faithful as Christians in an evil day, we've got to learn how to stand alone because there are many times in our Christian walk, there are many times when we're walking with God and serving God and proclaiming God that we're going to be alone. And we've got to be willing to stand in the midst of that darkness and be the light of the world because that's who Jesus Christ has called us to be. And the character of Noah's life was based more on his faith in God than it was in fear. Because at this point, Noah did not know that judgment was coming until God told him. So the quality of his life was driven by the faith that he had to begin with, more than the fear of what was going to happen. The Bible says in that great hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11 and verse 7, "...by faith being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear." Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. It's of note that among the heroes of the faith recorded in Hebrews 11, it is only Noah whose description both begins and ends with the phrase, by faith. His life was bookended by faith. So the word of judgment came to Noah, and God told Noah that he was about to put a stop to all the nonsense. He was about to bring judgment because the earth was filled with wickedness, verse 13. Understand that God's wrath is his holiness in action against sin. God's judgment is in perfect keeping with his holiness. And because he is holy, God cannot act in a way that is inconsistent with his character. And because his character is holy, he's going to act with wrath upon sin. There's a payment that is to be exacted. And J.I. Packer, the theologian, put it this way. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction 
to the objective moral evil. That's the reality that judgment is rooted in righteousness. And then now we come toward the third one, and we pick back up reading in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, God says. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you're to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark, make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives." You are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you may keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gathered as food for you and for them. Verse 22, and Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. So the third reality is that while judgment is rooted in righteousness, deliverance is rooted in grace. We already found back in verse 8 that Noah found favor or he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that the concept of grace appears in this way. There were foreshadowings of it when God provided the covering for Adam and Eve after they had sinned in the garden. But now, this is grace that is brought front and center. And in the darkest times, that's when grace shines through. It's in the most difficult times that the grace of God shines the brightest. And it's in the moment when there seems like there is no hope that God's grace is so powerful. And here was Noah. He was to make an ark of gopher wood, and this ark was to have rooms in it. It was to be covered inside and out with pitch, and the ark was to be approximately 450 feet long and 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. He was to finish the ark within 18 inches of the roof and the covering. And there would only be one door, and it would have a lower, a middle, and an upper deck. The instructions that God gave for the ark were with precision. You see, God always does everything with precision. God never does things disorderly. God never does things in a confused way. God never does things halfway. God does things with absolute precision. And it was no different in this circumstance. And he was told that he was use this gopher wood and then seal it with pitch. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but there is an important concept here, I think, because the word pitch that is used is the equivalent to the word cover, which simply means a covering. But the connection is it's also the regular Hebrew word for atonement that is used in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. 
So in a sense, this is the first mention of atonement in the Bible. Just like the pitch was to be used for a covering in the ark, it's the blood of the sacrifice that is used for our covering. And there are all sorts of types and symbols and foreshadowings that are found here in this story. And that one door symbolizes that there's only one way in. And for us, there's only one way in, and that is through Jesus Christ. He's the door. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And they were to bring in with them, not only themselves, but also two of every kind. I think there's a sense of the power of God at work in this as well, because there was a genetic database, essentially, that God was bringing onto that ark so that the world could be repopulated. And then also they were to bring in seven pairs of the clean animals. One of the great questions, this is my only apologetic interjection into this message, is that many people don't believe the ark would have been sufficient to have enough capacity to pull off what God says happened. Well, Henry Morris, uh, the creationist, said, with the dimensions as calculated, the total volumetric capacity of the ark was approximately 1,400,000 cubic feet, which is equal to the volumetric capacity of 522 standard livestock cars as used on modern railroads. And about 240 sheep can be transported in one stock car, which would amount to a total of over 125,000 sheep that could have been carried in the ark, representing the fact that the size of the ark seems appropriate for the animals that it had to carry. And as I said, God had on that ark that genetic database that was needed to repopulate the earth with the breathing, living animals. But here's the heart of the message. Noah heard and he obeyed God. You know, that's a life well lived in and of itself that we hear and that we obey God. That's what verse 22 says, in everything that God had commanded him, he obeyed God. He did what God told him to do. Do you know the reason that a lot of professing believers are as miserable as they are in this life? It's because they want the assurance of having a home in heaven when they die, but they really want to still take control of their lives on this earth. So when God calls to do difficult things and when God calls us to do the heavy lifting and when God calls us to be obedient and it doesn't seem right and it seems like we're losing so many things that the world has to offer and it seems like that the sacrifice is too great, we convince ourselves somehow that it's not worth it when God says, if you will trust me, I will honor your faith, I will bless you, I will see you through and I will be glorified. That's the point that we hear God and that we obey God. Even if it's not comfortable, even if it's not convenient, even if it's not easy, we do what God has said to do and God will upkeep his end of the deal. Even when we are faithless and we just aren't feeling it, our God is faithful. And he takes us and he uses us. So here was God calling throughout the entire way for people to turn from wickedness and resist evil. God explains he's bringing this flood on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on the earth would perish. But because of grace, humanity would be spared through Noah and his family. 
Hey, that's why we're here today. It's because of the grace of God. It's because God, even though he regretted that he had made man, there was this one man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, he went through that one door that was open to him and he took his family with him. And now we are here as beneficiaries because they got on the boat. And I want to ask you today, are you living your life in such a way that there are going to be people who get on the spiritual boat, who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from you because of the obedience of your life, and the only way that they would be beneficiaries of that is if God used you to extend the message of grace to them. I hope that when we enter into heaven someday that there will be a whole host of people who were there who came through that one door who heard that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and they came to him and they were beneficiaries of that spiritual life that's the message that we're sharing because of grace God moved now Genesis 7 and 8 tell the story of the flood I'll recount it just briefly The rain would fall for 40 days and 40 nights. When the flood is referred to in the New Testament, the word that is used is cataclysmos, meaning that it was a worldwide cataclysmic flood, unique in all of history. Noah and his family get on the ark. It had never rained at this point in history. And then suddenly it rained for 40 days and for 40 nights to the point that even the mountains were covered. And God wiped away from the face of the earth every living creature. And then, after a considerable amount of time had passed, you know the story, the bird was sent out to see if there was a place to light, the progression of the waters beginning to come down, and just put yourself in their place. The rocking of the boat stopped, And God told Noah to get out of the ark with his family. The very first thing Noah did, chapter 8, was he built an altar to the Lord and he offered a burnt offering. God made a solemn promise that he would never again curse the earth in this way or destroy it as he had done with the flood. What was God's sign? It was the rainbow. Let's pick up reading again in Genesis 9 and verse 12. And I'm going to bring this message to a close. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and there will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between you and me and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. And God said to Noah, verse 17, This is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and every creature on the earth. Now, verse 16 here makes it clear that God is the one who extends the covenant, and God is the one who keeps the covenant. And it doesn't matter how bad the storm is. When the rainbow appears, it reminds us of the grace of God and the perpetual covenant that he's made with his people. Now, I told you at the beginning of this message, I was going to bring it full circle, tie it back into what we're thinking about today. And I've already done that in part, but here it is in closing. 
there's corruption on the earth today, just as there was in the days of Noah. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a comprehensive statement of humanity. Judgment is coming. It's certain. Hebrews chapter 9 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And I often say every human being has an appointment with God. We know not when the appointment will be, but we know we've got an appointment. And either we will be judged for our sins because we've not trusted in Christ, or we will experience the full blessing of Christ's righteousness imputed to us, which guarantees our eternity. Corruption is great, judgment is coming, and deliverance has already come. The Bible says in Titus 2 and verse 1 that the grace of God has appeared, verse 11 rather, bringing salvation for all people. The darkness has seen the light, and that's Jesus, who is the light of the world. So what's our role? We are messengers of deliverance with the gospel down the street and around the world to all nations that people might be reconciled to a holy God forgiven of their sins gifted with eternal life and assured of a home in heaven see that's the ultimate message here in these chapters in Genesis of a saving delivering righteous gracious God spire heads together for a moment father we are in awe of what took place across all the earth so many thousands of years ago I believe, Father, in faith that this account is true and accurate because it's been given to us in your word. And while we may not understand all the details or be able to comprehend the immensity of all that took place, we see you and your glory in it clearly. I pray for any who are under the sound of my voice who have never experienced that deliverance. Grace has never come into their lives. I pray they'd not be like what must have been millions upon millions of people who ignored the message of righteousness that Noah preached. I pray there's anybody here who has not been delivered from their sin to the Savior that today would be the day they would repent and believe. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of a dark world. You have sent us as ambassadors of Christ with a message of hope, a message of deliverance. May we be bold in that in our daily lives, in our families, and in our opportunities to be on mission with the gospel. So we give this time of close and response over to you, and we ask you, Lord, that you would use it as you see fit. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.